because of COVID and all sorts of other distractions. So now the date is March 20th. Okay. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. We'll be lucky to get the podcast out before March 20th, right? Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice a month, and that's aspirational, not in actuality, podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast will discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Swap. Swapno? Hey, uh, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist. I work um, at the University of Ottawa and I tweet at hswapnil. And Jenny. Hi, I'm Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University and I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. And we have three special guests. The first one I want to introduce is Dr. Rob Provenzano. This is a man who means a lot to me. He was the person that interviewed me for my first job and has been a mentor to me throughout my career. Uh, Dr. Robert Provenzano, Professor of Medicine at Wayne State. Bob, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, Bob Provenzano, and I remember that interview well, Joel. It was uh, it was a highlight of, uh, of my best hire ever. Will still poke fun at me, but uh, your success has always been uh, really uh, inspiring to me and, and many other people. So thanks for inviting me. Excellent. And we have uh, Dr. Pascal Kirilla, uh from Baylor University in Houston, and uh, she is part of the Neff Madness Executive Committee. First, uh, first year doing that. Introduce yourself, Pascal. Um, all right. So thanks for having me. Um, I'm Pascal Carrella, assistant professor at uh, Baylor College of Medicine. I have to correct you there, Joel. There's uh, universities not in Houston. <laughs> um, uh, and I tweet at Carrella underscore P. And lastly, we have uh, Nayan Aurora from University of Washington. Nayan, why don't you introduce yourself? Nyan Aurora. I am a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. I have a clinical interest in cardiorenal syndrome. Um, I'm very interested in uh, learning how to say Roxadustad correctly today, and I uh, tweet at Captain Chloride. Excellent, excellent. In my excitement to start the recording, I forgot to do conflicts of interest. So I am working with AstraZeneca, mostly on some CKD stuff, but AstraZeneca is going to be co-marketing with uh, Fibrogen uh, Roxadustat when that gets approved. And Bob Provenzano does consultant work for Fibrogen or AstraZeneca, but he's involved. he has been hired by them to help them with the rollout of Roxadustat. Anemia and nephrology have had a tangled relationship. Though nephrologists that can remember dialysis in the 80s are becoming rarer and rarer, their tales of transfusions hanging from every station are graphic and frightening. At a time when trust in the blood supply was at an all-time low from HIV and hep C still lurking under the name of non-A, non-B hepatitis, dialysis patients were receiving transfusions at the rate of 15% every three months. And into that disaster came Amgen, 
with one of the first recombinant gene technologies to mass-produce a pharmacologic version of the human glycoprotein erythropoietin, and dialysis changed overnight. The stark success of EPO resulted in a secondary problem. The difference between before EPO and after EPO was so stark that no one was willing to randomize patients to EPO or not to look at questions like mortality. EPO was approved and adopted solely on its ability to reduce transfusions. The lack of placebo trials became more and more apparent and more and more important as people started eyeing the holy grail of any drug, reduction of total mortality. An idea was incepted into the collective nephrology mind that higher hemoglobin levels could protect the heart from a lot of the damage it sustains in uremic states. We literally started asking what dose would protect against heart disease before we asked if any dose protected against heart disease. This was first tested by Anthony Bezerab in 1998, where the theory failed spectacularly with a trend of increased mortality with increased hematocrit that was only saved from becoming significant by stopping the trial early. The authors, trialists, and sponsors all walked away from the stark results of that trial to the detriment of kidney patients everywhere. The battle then moved to CKD with the thought that correcting anemia early in the natural history would pay dividends later for patients. This was put to the test in three important trials, choir, create, and treat. None of these bore out the theory and started to expose a darker underbelly of EPO with increased thrombosis, stroke risks, and a worrying cancer signal. This resulted in a black box warning and a new appreciation for moderation in hemoglobin targets. But the consensus targets of 10 to 11 were not determined empirically. These were merely the control groups in failed interventional trials. Was 11 better than 9? Was 9 better than 7? To answer those questions, you were left sifting through the dustbins of retrospective and observational data. That brings us to the great new hope in anemia, a technology burnished by a Nobel Prize in medicine. HIF stabilizers promise to improve anemia with a pill and hopes to leave the painful memories of EPO behind. Tonight, we will discuss some of the first long-term safety data, and it's apparent that every aspect of these trials has been informed by the problems suffered by the earlier work with EPO. Swapnil, do you have any other framing or opening thoughts? Yeah, so we, we delved into, you know, I had, I had bought into the findings of the normal hematocrit study as they were sold, uh, along with the whole nephrology community. Uh, and once, once Dan, uh, Daniel Coyne's analysis, reanalysis came out, it was eye-opening, you know, like we, I felt duped. I felt that, you know, we were, we were completely foolish and how come we did not see through the way the New England allowed the analysis to be presented. It, or, or in, I think New England even promoted the way the analysis was done to make it look, you know, whatever it was. And there were all sorts of stories that were spun. You know, maybe the normal hematocrit people got more iron or, or there were some other things that happened and achieved higher he- well and they used yeah they used a lot of achieved hemoglobin rather than targeted hemoglobin a lot of a lot of achieved hemoglobin rather than intention to treat oh, which oh, it was, was a, it was a, far a worse slick than that. move so, but so not very they, they sort of said that uh, going from a hemoglobin of 30 to 42 will give you a quality of life increase of so much uh, so that was completely extrapolated but 30 and 42 hematocrits were sort of corresponding to the 10 and you know 14 hemoglobins that were the target so the way the results were written were made to sort of trick you into thinking that was the achieved quality of life difference when there was no quality of life difference. It's really, a, it's a huge black mark against all of us to have believed those results and for the New England to, you know, still have that paper as it is. 
Bob, you were you were you had a front row seat for a lot of these talks and a lot of these battles. What what are your thoughts about uh, kind of the 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 anemia battles of of your? Well, I mean, I think you teed it up. You you've got to put everything in perspective. So when I was a fellow, which would have been in 1988, we would go home on Friday and hope that our patients uh, in the dialysis unit who had hemoglobins of five and a half to six made it till Monday. You know, because yeah, they were transfusion dependent, but blood wasn't always available. And I, I'm telling you, you know, people can't understand how we actually worried about them over the weekend. So when when Amgen moved forward with uh, Epogen, it, it was like a miracle. I mean, truly, it was a miracle. Ferritins of 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 from all the transfusions were coming down. I mean, we just thought we were the slickest guys in the in the room, right? But to your point, uh, we we didn't we didn't we didn't know a lot because of the lack of placebo-controlled trials. But again, you have to put things in perspective. I hate using 21st century judgment and go backwards and say, "Oh, you guys are idiots." I often tell the fellows and students, you're going to be explaining to your grandchildren the crazy stuff you did when you were doctors, and they're going to think you are nuts. So then the next logical step, of course, would be, well, our patients are tired. They have poor quality of life. Well, maybe a normal hemoglobin would help. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And so that's when we started going down the path. And, and to your point, Tony Bessarab, I think he was at the University of West Virginia at the time, before he came back to Detroit, we started looking at these things. And I, you know, I mean, it was surprising. We had just incredible debates at ASN and, you know, the methodologies and such. But we better understand now that, and, and I, I want to make this point clear, the current management of anemia is delivering pharmacologic doses of a hormone, erythropoietin, pharmacologic doses while inducing a, a basically a relative iron deficient state. You've got it. I mean, iron just isn't freely available and that creates its own problems. As Linda Sussich and other have found in the sub-analysis that these high doses may be the culprit. So I think to Swapnil's point, here we are in the 21st century and we have, you know, the hip PHIs, which are physiologically much more elegant and set off a cascade of events much more consistent with what we would call the normal methodology of making blood, right? So we, we have a lot to learn. Yeah, and, and again, I'll, I'll have to you know step back. Uh, I have changed my own beliefs over time. In the early 2000s, uh, I, I thought IV iron was toxic. I've been there. And then uh, I've changed my mind and now I'm like, you know, uh, I think Daniel uh, Coyne has convinced me that it doesn't matter. Maybe there is no ceiling. Uh, so I give a lot of iron now. Uh, and maybe, you know, uh, a few years from now, once we get new evidence, we can change our minds again. Uh, I, I'm sure the iron debate is going to happen many more times in the next hour. So we can we can shelf uh, that for now. But I, I totally agree. You know, we we get new evidence and we change our minds. That is completely legit. You bring up a very good point. You know, we're physician scientists. We will all, you know, we, we have whatever ability to manage disease we have in our hands, right? I collect old medical textbooks and I always like to joke, I have the 1899 encyclopedia 
and they treated menstrual cramps with cigarettes. Young women were given cigarettes for, and they all justify that as being the best thing available. We, we rationalize stuff today that 10 years from now, we're going to be kicking ourselves. I am not a big fan of iron. I mean, I lived through the ferritins of four, five, 6,000, like I mentioned. I think that just giving iron to sort of jam the erythropoietic process while tying up iron in, you know, all the stores and the reticulocytes and the liver probably isn't the best thing in the world. And I think we can do better. But to your point, Swapno, we're just going to have to see. Pascal, uh, do you take care of dialysis patients now? I do. I round on dialysis patients. But I have to say I'm loving this conversation because a lot of what you guys are mentioning was before I was even born. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so it's like really. <laughs> this is why we're not really jumping in to interrupt because this is all like you yeah. do. Because <laughs> all I know is from like what we know in the past like two or three years when I was a fellow, and so this is really fascinating to listen to. Um, I have to say I am cautiously optimistic about the HIF PHIs, not as enthusiastic as everyone is. So I was yeah. four years old when I think this was the EPO was FDA approved. So thank you guys for being the pioneers <laughs> of uh, clearing this up for me. Um, I, I use a lot of, I'm a fan of iron. So I, it sounds like we're going to have uh, some dissenting opinions here, but I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of giving iron to my dialysis patients. And, and, so, and, I, and you also take care of dialysis patients? I do. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. And that, and that's what we want to have. We want to have people that are in the trenches that are taking care of patients that see the, the issues that we're going to be having with these drugs. Which one do we want to start with? We're going to start with uh, the pooled analysis, uh, or do we want to start with the CKD? Let's do the pooled analysis since that's the one I'm closest familiar with. And Dan did the other one, but I, I'm pretty good with that one. Good. Okay. We're going to do the pooled, we're going to do the pooled analysis. Swap, you want to hit us with some, uh, Methods? Some some yes, methods. methods, yeah. Some very high level methods because you have got you know you have got two trials or rather two studies we are going to talk about. Uh, and before I begin, can I ask one question again to Bob? Is that um, you know normally when you have a drug uh, that is going to come to market, uh, the the pharma does one large trial or sometimes two large trials. In this case, like there are these three trials, and then there are there's another paper in NDT yesterday, and there was something in JSN a couple of weeks ago. Like it looks like many, many trials were done. Um, so what's the scoop behind that? Is that for FDA or, you know, because different places have different rules or something else? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And it, it's the answer is complicated. So some of it was the FDA. Some of it was a timing issue uh, in different areas of the country. Some of it, honestly, was really the ability to Again, Fibrogen, it was and is a small company. And some of it was the ability just to manage the data. So I think it was a combination of all of these. But I will say that one thing that was very interesting is how closely Fibrogen and the FDA partnered on this. I've never seen anything quite like it. People were talking a lot about the confidence intervals and, you know, why it was 1.3 and not 1.25 and a whole bunch of other things. But hand in hand, the FDA was really guiding this based on phase two data. And I think that partnership was really, really important. Right. And this is this is the type of data that we never got with EPO, right? Because, you know, we had the luxury of a effective therapy to compare it to rather than the disaster of hemoglobins of five and a half. 
And so when you have that luxury, you can do a more organized and and careful and long-term trial. And the other thing I think that's important, and again, not to throw dirt on, on Amgen, I mean, it was 30 years ago. I mean, the world was different 30 years ago, is we now better understand, if you go back, CKD wasn't even a thing 30 years ago. You know, just, it didn't even, you can't even find it in the books. But we now know that CKD cohort is different than the incident dialysis cohort, which is different than the prevalent dialysis cohort. So we wanted to study each of them and really tease out if there are advantages. In other words, if if I manage the hemoglobin CKD four and five, does that have an impact down the road? And so, so it was really sort of nice sorting through this data. Excellent. Okay, swap. Since we've gotten not one word in about this methods, <laughs> let's get this thing started. Okay, this this analysis is the pooled analysis from three different studies, uh, and they're sort of similar. They're not exactly similar, but they're pretty similar enough for our purposes. So the patient population were incident dialysis patients, like Bob just alluded, not prevalent patients, not non-dialysis patients. They were incident, incident meaning they they were on dialysis for less than four months. Uh, they could be hemo or PD. Otherwise, I did not see hemoglobin threshold or iron threshold, but the the interventions in this case was uh, EPO versus roxadustat. So unlike the other trial, as we shall see, which was roxadustat versus placebo, this one, uh, because they are dialysis patients, we know dialysis patients, most of them need EPO. So what is the point of doing a placebo uh, control study? So it was EPO versus, EPO meaning um, uh, parenteral uh, epoid and alpha. The rescue therapy was allowed uh, with blood transfusions or RBC, sorry, RBC or blood transfusions if they needed the hemoglobin to go up very fast uh, in, in some situations. And in the intervention, they say ESA was allowed if certain conditions were met. I presume that is ESA was allowed in the ROXA arm, uh, which refers to a hemoglobin which hasn't gone up after two dose increases or, you know, the max dose of ROXA was achieved uh, or if the hemoglobin was less than 8.5 for a couple of studies uh, with uh, no reason to have iron deficiency. And if they thought that, you know, reduction in um, blood transfusion was necessary, so they did not want to give blood, uh, then uh, then ESA could be used. How much ROXA yeah. were they using? Because I mean, they, they were very explicit about the doses in the CKD trial and it's kind of hard to find the doses here. Was there a lot of titration in this protocol? No, it's actually pretty straightforward. If you weighed 70 kilos or less, you got 70 milligrams three times a week. If you were more than 70 kilos, you got a 100 milligram tablet. Then if your hemoglobin didn't change in two weeks, well, it was up titrated or down titrated in two weeks. Generally speaking, after two cycles or about a month, people were sort of at their dose. So it wasn't that difficult. And, and would they go from like 70 to 140? You just double it? Is that what you would do? Correct. Do? Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So 70 to 140, 140 to 280 or 210? So the maximum dose was 400 milligrams. So that okay. anybody going up that high was, was not responding. So they could be rescued with EPO to your point. But like I said, generally people responded, you know, within four to six weeks. So two or three dose adjustments. And, and one of the key things, of course, is that roxadustat is oral, uh, unlike which is more important, of course, for the non-dialysis population as well. Uh, but it's, I think it's, I remember from Bob's talk the other day is that it's longer acting uh, compared to the other do stats. So it, it is given three times a week. Is that right? Yeah. Um, it, it, it can be safely given three times a week. Um, um, the key we're thing is again, people, 
were these given to people at dialysis? I mean, we know they took the med- yes. the pill. I mean, Correct. this was uh, okay. Yeah, it was like, administered by the staff. Uh, which kind of makes it nice and easy to give three times a week, of course. And and the key thing here in this study was the efficacy outcomes, but also the safety outcomes, which is different from the other study. So the efficacy outcomes here, of course, is a change in hemoglobin. Uh, and the timing for the hemoglobin change was 28 weeks to 52 for the U.S. study. And the uh, European Medical Agency, I guess, needed uh, 28 to 36 weeks. You know, it's, it's funny how the rules are so specific and so different. Uh, the the EU is different, yeah. though. Uh, it was yeah. actually the percent of patients that had the hemoglobin change. In the U.S., it was actually the actual change. But you're right. It, it was right. completely different. Yeah, and the, it was very right. explicit in the paper because they would talk about this was the EU primary outcome and here's the FDA primary outcome. Right. I mean, I can't remember yeah. reading a paper um, like that where they had co-primary outcomes depending on the agency that they're going to be submitting it to. Exactly. So there was the hemoglobin change, and this was, you know, the mean hemoglobin change or the p- proportion that achieved a hemoglobin. But they also had uh, a bunch of secondary efficacy outcomes, including CRP and cholesterol and iron use, RBC transfusion use, change in blood pressure. You know, again, e- ESAs can increase blood pressure. So they do- looked at all those things. Uh, but to me, the exciting part was the cardiovascular safety uh, endpoints. And I guess these are the ones where the sponsors talk to FDA and, and perhaps the EMA as well to come up with them. So this one was looking at cardiovascular safety. And actually, this whole conversation reminds me of the diabetes world, where, you know, drugs would be approved based on blood glucose. Uh, and then after the Avandia stuff uh, and Steve Nissen, they changed over to looking at cardiovascular safety rather than just, you know, a change in hemoglobin. So just like that uh, change in hemoglobin A1C, and in this case, change in hemoglobin. Uh, so for cardiovascular safety, they looked at MACE. Uh, which was the primary outcome, MACE including uh, major cardiovascular events, so cardiovascular, sorry, total mortality, MI or stroke. But they also looked at MACE plus, which include unstable angina and hospitalization for heart failure, and then the individual components of MACE. Bob, this is is one of my bugs in the bonnet. Anytime you have a dialysis study and they have heart failure as an outcome, I'm terrified that a person who misses dialysis shows up with shortness of breath, has a BNP of, what, 20,000, and gets called a heart failure. How did you guys adjudicate that? And do you trust this kind of that heart, those heart failure adjudications, or what do you think? Yeah, so I'm worse than you about this because, you know, our colleagues in the ER look at a dialysis patient and they're all heart failure. They're all so heart failure. That's we right. had an independent group adjudicate any patient that was deemed to have a MACE plus event. So they would look at the hospital records, make a determination, did they miss two dialysis treatments? So it's a really good call out, but we were very satisfied that the independent group sorted through those misdiagnoses. Hey, Bob, I know Swap said, um, you know, standard of care ESAs in this group, but did you guys think of having a placebo arm? The reason I ask is that these guys had an inclusion, my understanding is a hemoglobin of 10 to 12, right? So they're already at target on entry into the study. And we know that ESAs did worse than placebo in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. So what we're saying is, are these drugs better than drugs that already have a low bar yeah. to kind of be better. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So let me walk you through the decision-making process for both studies. So the, you're, you're correct. But in dialysis, the standard of care, to Swapnil's point, is ESAs. And in the incident dialysis patient, it was felt both 
by the sponsor and certainly by the FDA that despite the fact that you made denying a patient, particularly a prevalent patient, the management of their anemia, i.e. putting them on placebo, would not be correct. However, in the CKD population, the state, you know, in the U.S. at least, maybe 15% of people are treated. So one could argue that the majority of patients with CKD anemia aren't treated and therefore placebo would not be incorrect. That was the logic they used. Yeah, I mean, I, when I come across a hemodialysis patient, I, I take care of very few PD. It's almost entirely HD for my patients. When I come across one that's not on EPO, it always is like a remarkable thing. It was like you find a diamond in the rough. You're like, oh, check it out. He's not on any EPO. It's so unusual. Yeah. Uh, yeah. PKD patients also sometimes uh, have no yeah, and, and you come across them and they're an oddity and you kind of think about it. But uh, yeah, to me, it, it, what you would have seen was a very rapid shift in the placebo group to them all needing rescue therapy. And it would have just been a kind of a, a backdoor EPO trial. And the, the adjudication point that uh, you guys mentioned just now reminds me that I didn't say, but this was an open label yeah. trial, uh, you know, because, you know, you're, you're giving a pill. No, um, don't give them, they're going to pass for that. Come on. Everyone. We can do double, we've done double dumb, <laughs> what do they call them? Double dummies? Double dummy? Uh, double dummy. Where yeah. you give, yeah. you can do this. It's not, it's not impossible to still blind them. Yeah, we didn't want to go down that nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and the capsulology with that. But but I guess the adjudication committee would have been blinded. Um, yes, to, that's right. They mentioned yeah. they mentioned that very specifically. Exactly. Um, and and on the with the mace, when you look at the power calculation, uh, so there's a one for mace and one for the um, hemoglobin change. Um, so you know they needed ninety percent power or so. But the hazard ratio was 1.3 for the non-inferiority. And that's the key aspect, right? 30%. So you're allowing 30% more badness uh, with roxadustat. But, but remember, with non-inferiority, and, and we have a previous blog post that we can link to, link to in the show notes, that refers to not just the point estimate, but it refers to the 95% confidence interval. For example, if, if the uh, ESA arm, in this case, of course, as we will find out, you know, this was not an issue at all. But let's say the ROXA but the hazard ratio was 0.95. we will never deny swap the opportunity to talk about statistics. Even though it's not an issue, go swap. <laughs> talk more about inferiority because we all love it. <laughs> yeah. and you, you, well, But people yeah, need you, to know. You, you can edit it out. I mean, I think yeah. people need to know about this because we live in a world that is, you know, non-inferiority is important to understand. It's, it's the coin of the realm nowadays. It really is. Doing superiority is risky. It's expensive and it's actually really hard to do. <laughs> right, right. Like it, both these things increase hemoglobin. So how can you expect superiority, right? How, you know, if it was placebo, then it's fine to have a superiority. Uh, but, but when you have two products which have similar physiological effects, why are you thinking of superiority? Then you have to show that, hey, it is not worse. Uh, that's sort of some of the logic of the non-inferiority, which I get. Uh, and with the 30%, it refers to the confidence intervals, the 95% confidence interval. So let's say ROXA versus ESA in this case, the hazard ratio was 0.95, but the confidence interval went from 0.6 to 1.31, then it would no longer have been non-inferior because it crossed that 1.3. Uh, so it's not the point estimate, but the 95% confidence intervals that matter. And so, so if you have 1.1 or something, you know, people are talking about why 30%, why not 20% or 25 It would be 
really really hard your sample size would go up very fast you know you you know if it was 1.1 i'm sure you would need like 100000 patients uh, to reach that narrow 25% confidence intervals which you know realistically is very hard to do oh no i'm just going to say that's what we tell our second kid the goal is not inferiority oh <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Swapno, you bring up a good point because the Vatadustat uh, data that was presented at ASN, their cutoff was 1.25 and they failed to, to show non-inferiority. And so it's been catastrophic for them. And people are arguing, how did you come up with that number? Why did you do that number? And then they pulled out the European data and lo and behold, it worked. And so it, it, it's really, really important when you get into these trials to really understand what it is mm-hmm. you're looking for. And I agree with you. Nobody doubted from the phase two trials that this could correct hemoglobin. The real question mm-hmm. was, yes. what else, what are the advantages? And we know in our patients, MACE and MACE Plus is where the value to our patients exist. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, so on that note, can I move on quickly to the other paper? It won't take long. Anybody have any me- question on the methods of the pooled analysis? We're all good with the pooled analysis methods. I just, uh, I, I couldn't find it here. What, what was, and maybe you said it, what was the target hemoglobin uh, for people that were getting EPO? 11 plus, for both, it was 11 plus or minus one. 11 plus or minus one for both. Okay. And, and, and yeah, I forgot to say that. So for Nyan and me, uh, who are iron believers, the iron requirements were pretty sort of lose. Uh, I, I guess they left it to the individual practice because everyone practices differently. Uh, but, you know, like I've been going for ferritins more than 500, uh, you know, pushing it high. Uh, but I think in this case, from the supplement, at least it looks like you let them do what they wanted, uh, individual centers. Well, centers. We, we didn't have much of a choice because there are so many different programs and everybody, to your point, did iron differently. All we did was have a lower cutoff saying, look, if your ferritin is less than 100 and your T-sat's less than 20, you got to do something. What you do is up to you. Right. So they could even give oral iron. It becomes a more of an issue in this next trial, in this next trial where iron was considered a rescue therapy and kicked people out of the trial. Then it's become much, much a larger issue in the CKD trial. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can understand, yeah. right? Uh, people are reluctant to give iron still. You know, they still think iron is bad and there's a lot of variability in the community in terms of what their feelings on iron are. Yeah, it's ama- it is pretty it is pretty amazing when you talk to nephrologists. There's a lot of individualization there. And, and when were these trials started? Like you know, my practice has become more liberal since Pivotal came out, which was just last year. So if these trials started before, you know, it would be totally understandable. Yeah, they started before. They were closed. Uh, it was 2012. Yeah, I it was 2012 yeah. to 2016. Or yeah, 2018. I was going to say two, three years now. It's been, they've been closed. Yeah. Yeah. So at that time, uh, you know, I have to admit that at that time, even I may not have been as gung-ho with iron as, you know, I am now. Um, that's okay, I guess. Um, I'll grant that. Um, so the, uh, <laughs> the the other trial is the Andes trial, which is simpler. It is the one in non-dialysis patients. Um, so CKD patients and the GFR cutoff was less than 60. And the iron baseline hemoglobin had to be less than 10. But the ferritin, as Joel pointed out, had to be more than 30 with TSATs more than five, which is very low uh, for iron repletion uh, in, in that uh, CKD trial. And uh, they were randomized two to one. So patients, uh, you know, there were twice as many patients who got ROXA compared to placebo in the CKD arm 
uh, in the CKD arm, yeah, and randomization was stratified on the basis of, you know, the GFR being less than 30, more than 30, uh, history of cardiovascular disease, hemoglobin less than 8 or more than 8, which all seems reasonable. And uh, the ROXA dosing we talked about, it was uh, 70 milligrams ROXA. 70, same, same policy, same policy. They use in the dialysis yeah, patient. Yeah, uh, based yeah. on weight. Um, and uh, given three times a week with uh, blind dead. So this was a double blind study with placebo versus uh, uh, roxadustat. The key thing, of course, here is you're having patients with a hemoglobin less than 10 and randomizing them to placebo. So there was a rescue therapy which was allowed. So if the hemoglobin was, uh, they don't actually tell me how much the hemoglobin was um, that I could find. But if the hemoglobin therapy, hemoglobin response was not good, patients could get blood, RBC transfusion, ESA treatment or IV iron, though they encouraged oral iron. So for the placebo, it wasn't that, you know, you're going to leave them on placebo. Uh, if, if the hemoglobin wasn't going up, they could get ESA or iron or blood transfusion. And, that, and that's why we had such a high dropout in the placebo arm, right? Because the patients were progressed with their CKD, their anemia would not be responding. And the physicians, of course, would rescue them, uh, which caused a very large dropout in that arm. And uh, in this case, of course, the this was mostly a hemoglobin uh, trial. So the primary efficacy outcome was change in hemoglobin. Uh, again, you know, 28 to 52 weeks for FDA and uh, the Europeans had a slightly different, um, uh, they wanted a hemoglobin response more than five days apart in the first 24 Similar, yeah, similar, exactly. Again, the same, the same thing that Bob was talking about, the fraction the fraction of people that responded exactly. rather than the average change in hemoglobin. Uh, now, these guys looked at a bunch of other things, uh, including hepcidin um, and iron and ferritin and TSATs, apart from the cholesterol um, in this trial, which is something that is sort of hepcidin part was the unique part, I guess, of this trial. Um, I have to say a lot of, I think, of the trials did include hepcidin. Correct. Yeah. They all did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the remarkable aspects so. of, the, of the HIF stabilizers is that they really improve mm -hmm. iron handling, right? They, they kind of change the body's response in kind of a, the opposite direction that we're used to seeing in these uh, patients on EPO. Yeah, so, so anyone wants to say something more about hepcidin there? It's something which is, you know, uh, I, I still don't understand it. I know it's bad if it's high and it goes up in, as yeah, the GFR goes it's, down. It's, it's an acute... It's an acute uh, phase reaction, right? It goes up with inflammation and it, it makes the iron that's uh, – two things. It makes the iron that's in the serum unavailable to be used and it decreases the absorption of iron. I got that pretty much yeah. right? Yeah. At the highest level, yeah. you're right. I mean, IL-6 stimulates, you know, it, it, which is elevated in inflammation, the liver to make hepcidin. Hepcidin is a critical factor in the uh, metal transport uh, proteins in the gut, those are blocked. So you can't absorb iron. You can't translocate iron into the, to transferrin. Transferrin can't release it. I mean, it, the, basically iron is blocked. So by decreasing hepcidin, we see a much more physiologic availability of iron. And at least in the ID trial, we saw that the total iron requirements was significantly less in the EPO group, I think it was like 77 versus 53 or something like that. That's why this study was personally more exciting to me. I mean, we have out in Seattle, I mean, we have people driving three hours one way for a, for a clinic appointment. Now, if I can be like, hey, take this pill and now your oral iron is going to work better for you and keep your, now you don't have to drive all that way for a, for a shot of, you know, EPO. Yeah. Uh, th th this is very exciting, I think. 
Yeah, I think we under, you know, we, we look, we need to be as, as patient focused as we can. And in CKD, many patients are not treated just because of the logistics. You can't give EPO in your office unless you're tied to a university pharmacy because it's too expensive. And then you send your patient to an infusion center. That's another appointment. At least in Detroit, our patients often take two buses to get to, to, to the office. It, it just is not workable. And it's so funny now because, you know, there are people on both sides of the fence. And now I, I hear patients complaining you know, sponsored patients complaining, oh my God, it's just going to increase the pill burden. I mean, seriously, as opposed to getting an injection. So, so don't we have a little bit of precedence with this? I mean, SGLT2 inhibitors also, you know, indirectly essentially stabilize HIF and yeah. will increase your plasma EPO levels, increase hemoglobin. We, we, we have a bit of a precedence for this, right? So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. A very nice paper came out, I think it was like last week or maybe two weeks ago, that it looks like that's how the SGLT2 inhibitors work by stimulating uh, HIF, HIF alpha 2. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I had seen the hemoglobin increase. Yeah, I did not realize it was HIF. You need to link us to that paper. And the nice thing, and it, I don't know if it's the same study, but one of the studies I looked at, they actually had, uh, they compared it with people on hydrochlorothiazide to try to, you know, right. look at that diuretic effect and still saw a significant rise in hemoglobin, um, suggesting okay. a HIF tablet. Yeah. Swap, are we done with the methods on this one? It doesn't feel like we even scratched the circle. We are. Okay, excellent. Okay, so I'm, I'm giving you, letting you off easy today. I'm, I'm, uh, thank God. We, uh, the, uh, I've never heard Swap go through the methods without talking about the supplement, so it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny, what happened in the pooled analysis? Let's start there. Okay, so as a warning, I'm a very pithy person, so this is going to be the TLDR version. Uh, so Roxa was basically non-inferior and superior to EPO. Uh, with statistically significantly larger increases in hemoglobin levels from baseline. And, uh, you know, if you look at the figure, you see a very nice curve that are separated. Um, but one caveat is that the error bars are represented by standard error instead of standard deviation, which uh, does make it look a little bit tighter than it would be if it were standard deviation. That was for the primary um, outcome. Secondary, we did see reductions in monthly IV iron use, but no differences in transfusion rates. And notably, there was lower uh, MACE in the ROXA group, but for other major adverse events, they were approximately similar. And so that was a 30%. The head ratio was 0.7 for MACE. That's like a pretty significant effect size. Like where, where people jumping up with joy, how, how yeah. You, you were looking for non-inferiority and you got superiority. Yeah, you know, it's a really good point because, again, I, I think a lot of people don't grasp that concept either. But you can be non-inferior and superior. And, yeah, you're right. We saw it. One question I have, which isn't really covered by these uh, studies, is, is anyone looking at this in cancer patients? So dialysis or you know, kidney patients who concurrently have other malignancies uh, where we are really hesitant to continue or start ESAs? And, you know, are there like longer term studies for this, especially since it's supposed to be actually helpful uh, for tumors in, in terms of if you are actually stabilizing HIF, then the tumor cells themselves actually um, under, they don't have the hypoxic metabolism that promotes uh, oncogenic growth. So, re rewind, I'll, I'll make sure I, I'm not, I'm not familiar with this. So Cancer cells are dependent on hypoxic growth, and by flipping the switch on this on, on these HIF genes, we can inhibit cancer growth. Is that the theory, at least? 
uh, hypoxia pathways. The yeah, hypoxia that, that metabolism. I thought it was also the opposite. I mean, I, and I'm team hip all the way. Like I'm getting my t-shirt, you know, hip t-shirt made, but <laughs> where did we find this guy? <laughs> I thought we were getting some impartial guy. Now I find out he's on the team. <laughs> um, there's certain cancers. They're actually looking at HIF inhibitors, right? Because of how they impact VEGF, angiogenesis, all this Correct. stuff. So that's the one thing that gives me pause about mm-hmm. the, you know, long-term safety is uh, uh, we're saying, you know, more HIF, HIF all the way. And then these cancer guys are like, well, yeah. we got to we gotta come up with these HIF inhibitors. Yeah. I so, was actually going to ask Dr. Provenzano, like what long-term effects are we expecting with this? Things yeah. we haven't seen now, but we are expecting to see. So these are all the right questions. So the big fear uh, to, your, to your points is that the Roxadustat or all the Dustats target about 4,000 genes. And many of those are off-target worries. So VEGF, for example, was a big fear. And we, 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 we monitored that very, very closely. And we did not see it go up. We also monitored, we had 10,000 patients for uh, cancer signals. Now, granted, the the Im- incidence of cancer even in 10,000 patients is so low, it's hard to say, but we also didn't see a signal. But it is a big fear because of off-target stimulation. We believe because it's dosed infrequently, like three times a week, that there isn't a sustained stimulation. We use data from patients who have a normally high level of HIF stimulation patients with polycythemia or patients who have other pulmonary problems that result in polycythemia, basically. No uh, cancer triggers in those patients. But to your point, it's going to be a phase four registration thing, right? We don't know what giving somebody a HIF for 10 or 15 years is going to do, right? Starting them on CKD and having them go on dialysis for five years, 10 years, or 15, we just don't know. And we're just going to have to figure it out. I think it's instructive that the the cancer signal with EPO didn't really emerge until we started really focusing in on CKD. And, uh, you know, as, as this may sound cynical, but the life expectancy of dialysis patients and the competing mortality of cardiovascular disease is so overwhelming, it's really hard to pick out a cancer signal there. There's just not that many opportunities. And a lot of this data that we've been collecting on the HIF stabilizers has been on dialysis, right? There's been certainly the, the great work in CKD, but at least half, maybe more than half of it is going to be dialysis. But uh, also, I, I think though cancer, active cancer or something was an exclusion, right? Because for ESAs, it's kind of a red flag, right? Yeah, it's contraindicated for your ESA. You can't randomize those patients. That's right. Yeah, Don't I mean, look, yeah, we're trying to do a trial to answer the high-level questions. So we didn't do transplants. We didn't do peds. We didn't do pregnant patients. I mean, it's all the typical stuff because it just becomes too complicated. Okay. <laughs> what results we got? We know that the hemoglobin was slightly better with the, oh, we got the MACE and the MACE plus. Every, the only one that did cross the line was the all cause mortality, right? That one was neither superior nor, that was, um, uh, non, it, non inferior, right? Right. It, 24%, it trended in the right direction, but it was not, uh, and, significant. And it was just, it, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. not inferior. That, that's a win, right? right. Not inferior is what you're looking for, right? Can I say something? 
Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes, uh, you may. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for asking permission. That's the proper way to do it. Swap. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I do. Um, so, so on the on the non inferiority aspect, like the point estimate is still you know point seven six, and it's just a number of events are smaller. So you do expect that, right? When you're looking, when you're slicing and dicing each individual outcome, for each of them to be superior would be highly unusual. You know, unless you have a flows in, right. you don't see that kind of a, a, a effect. You're po- you're powered for that primary, exactly. the first one, which is the exactly. mace. That's a great exactly. point. Exactly. And the second thing is like uh, stroke is interesting. Again, not very much related. But if you remember treat, uh, one of the big things with treat was that strokes went up with the ESA. In this case with HIF, just individually, the number of strokes were again small. And this may be a chance finding. But uh, that was something that struck out to me that stroke where the stroke events were really low with the ROXA versus ESA. Right. Is is that the benefit of ROXA or just avoiding the EPO? It's a good question. I mean, that's yeah. that's the right question. You don't know. Uh, oh, was there a blood pressure signal? And we know that EPO raises blood pressure. We know this is going to raise EPO to some degree. Did this raise blood pressure? Was that measured? It was measured, but I can't I can't see the numbers. Uh, did you? We were looking for a supplemental publication in the future then. So it's in the supplement someplace. There's, well, we didn't see a signal. Okay. We didn't see a signal okay. in okay. either in either group. Okay. Okay. So we're- Were there lots of people with EPO resistance or not really in the study? The dialysis studies. I'm going back to that. I think it was something like 10 or 12%, something like okay, that. Okay. So not bad. We would have seen- um, And then it, when- Okay, Jenny, give us a- cool. Andy's. Okay. Basically, for the primary outcome, there was a larger increase in hemoglobin. It was over one uh, from baseline in the ROXA group. And in terms of secondary outcomes, we also saw uh, lower serum hepcidin by uh, week four and then also lower LDL, the clinical significance of which uh, is unclear. Okay. Bumped our hemoglobins, but we're going up against placebo. So if you don't bump your hemoglobin, you're really the worst drug in the world. They got the better They got the better iron status, mm-hmm. right? Uh, lower serum hepcidin and lower LDL. Nyan, can you help us out yeah. with this LDL story? I think that um, these hip stabilizers actually degrade HMG-CoA reductase, and that's how they decrease LDL. It's a, pre- it's a pretty impressive delta, right? Yeah. From nearly 100 down to 70. Like a I mean, that's a, yeah. Almost. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'm telling you, Team Hef, these, these are going to be the new. <laughs> and, and, and we're going to see. We're going to see the reason why because we got the placebo results, and we have we look at these. The, do we have MACE outcomes here? What, what were they? What were the cardiovascular outcomes in the study? They did not have cardiovascular in the non-dialysis um, uh, study that was published. I didn't see, uh, but I know that there have been uh, studies. Like I think this was presented by Bob at Kidney Week, ah, but the, the paper but hasn't was, been published yet. Right? But there was um, adverse. But there was right. total adverse events, right? There were serious adverse events. And if there was a cardiovascular signal, presumably there'd be separation there. And there was no separation between placebo and drug, right? Okay, now let's go off book. Tell us about uh, EGFR, Bob. We saw a stabilization, actually an improvement in the ROXA group, about 1.6 cc's per minute in the treated group. So those were patients with EGFR starting greater than 15, so not CKD5. So that was very interesting. We do have some animal data suggesting that local ischemia, literally at the kidney cellular level, might improve. Uh, There's also data now coming from England that the HIFs sort of work in localized ischemia. So cardiac ischemia, brain ischemia, 
peripheral vascular ischemia. So there's a lot we're learning about mechanisms of action on localized tissue hypoxia. Anything else that people like from Andes that they want to bring up and talk about? Yeah, there was this um, increased risk of hyperkalemia. I don't know if we know, do we know why that happens? So when uh, the the Chinese studies were published last year in New England Journal. They also had a signal for hyperkalemia. Then here in the U.S., we did not see that signal in the dialysis population, but we saw a trend in the non-dialysis population. And honestly, there's no good explanation. Just, I mean, to be fair, we don't have a good explanation as to why that is. Yeah, but how many genes did you say get turned on here? Presumably in the dialysis population, it was just being controlled, right, with dialysis. So it would have been harder to see that signal. Uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay, so the drug in CKD worked. There was no excess adverse events. There was no reduction in adverse events. Uh, the EGFR data that you talked about wasn't in this paper. Am I right? I don't remember reading that. Yeah, no, it was not, not in this, this paper. paper. We'll not see yet. that. We'll see that later. And the one other thing they collected here was SF thirty uh, six. This is a uh, patient satisfaction. They focused on the vitality score, and the number was one point two two better with Roxa than with placebo. But um, I look, I did a little d- digging. It looks like to have a clinically significant difference. The consensus is it needs to be closer to five points, not 1.2 points. So I think that's a statistical but not clinical difference. I was going to say we had the same problem with all the trials that Amgen tried to do on quality of life, and the FDA just dismissed them. The quality of life surveys, I don't care which one you use, uh, are so difficult to interpret. They can be easily influenced and easily biased. And until we come up with some really powerful measure of quality of life, um, it's going to be hard to, to study. I mean, ultimately, quality of life is a patient telling you, hey, when I, my hemoglobin was nine, this is what I could do. My hemoglobin is now 12, and I can work, and I can do X, Y, and Z. But it's just hard to, to, to study, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I have not seen quality of life differences. in. There are very few studies which manage to show a clinically significant difference in quality of life. It, it's just, a, it's a hard one, I think. EPO did, right? No, that was the problem with, at least, well, it depends on the trial. Well, initially, It depends yeah. on the trial. The TREAT trial, if I remember correctly, did not. One of them, either Choir or CREATE, actually did show a, a quality of life difference, if I remember. And again, this is deep. I, I should shut up because I don't really remember. Yeah. It was very yeah. marginal and, you know, it's it's just difficult to really know what that means. And again, if we had the patients with the hemoglobin of five, like you're talking about in the, you know, 80s, then probably you would have been able to see, you know, we are in the, in a very tight eight to 11, whatever, you know, the lowest you are allowed to go before rescue therapy jumps in is like 8.5. So I think in that level, it's, it's very hard to show a quality of life difference. Okay. I think, are we done with, uh, are we done with these two trials? Is anybody, anything else anybody want to talk about that might be outside of the realm of these trials? So a couple of things. One is like, if these are licensed and approved, depending on the indication, which group of patients would you be really looking forward to using these drugs in? You know, like like Nayan was talking about the pre-dialysis CKD population, where this is like a no-brainer, right? You're giving them pills. It's a no-brainer. Right. And and add home hemo patients to that no-brainer list, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe maybe PD patients. And, 
Yeah. And then the other one that I think is a no-brainer is that patient with a ferritin of 4,000 and a hemoglobin of 7.6 and a T-sat of 60%. You're like, I don't know what to do for the guy, right? The problem is going to be in the dialysis unit, as all of us know, it is a industrialized care delivery system. What's really important is patient safety. And when you mix and match drugs, you get into patient safety problems. You know, giving one person EPO, one person a pill, it, it's really problematic. So they're not going to look at it like this. CKD is a no-brainer. You could argue home PD, no-brainers. But when you get into the dialysis unit, you've got to use different criteria. So if indeed the MACE and MACE Plus are real value-driven outcomes for the incident dialysis population, you would be hard denying a patient that advantage, in my mind. How would you say to a patient, we've got two opportunities. I can give you Rock the Stat, which has, you know, 30% or 34% less MACE and MACE Plus, or EPO, which doesn't. Well, I mean, that's going to be hard to deny to them. And if you go down that route, then you're just going to continue it under the prevalent patients because who can mix and match who's incident and who die? You know, you know how the dialysis units are. Yeah, that, and that and that's one of the things that it's interesting the way these articles have uh, dribbled out. Like we, as you said, there's a million of these studies. They're all going to be eventually put into a single publication where we're going to get them all pooled together, like you presented at Kidney Week. I presume, I presume that study's eventually coming. But right now. We've got the best case scenario, right? We've got the versus versus placebo, no no safety signal versus EPO in the incident patients, where the that was the best data that you guys had with the MACE, but in the prevalent dialysis patients, you guys didn't have this MACE advantage, right? And look, you know, again, it's it's survival of the fittest, right? We know the mortality trend from CKD, where most patients die before they they move on to dialysis. Then you have the high mortality incident patients. And if you actually become prevalent, you, you sort of won the lottery. You, you made it. It's a survivor cohort. And so what's going to be harming them, it might be very different than what kills most of the patients that are getting there. That's interesting. Hey, Bob, um, if I take these medicines, do I turn into like Lance Armstrong? I mean, do they help my <laughs> well, you, 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 I can't. Somebody sent me. It's, they're already being abused by athletes. They somehow, they somehow got a hold of them. So, I mean, that's like crazy. Yeah. In the chat, there was something, uh, uh, I think it was Roxa because, but it was like 2014 or 2016. They, the New York Times mentioned it with the, you know, the, the company name. Uh, so somehow someone got it out and uh, the cyclists have been using it. They are on the cutting edge of these things. They really are with EPO and now with this. What do you know anything about when the FDA is going to approve this? Do they we were know? supposed to approve it December twentieth, and then that right. got pushed off because of COVID and all sorts of other distractions. So now the date is March twentieth. So in a month. In case you were wondering, they were not approved on March twentieth. The wait continues. Okay. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. We'll be lucky to get the podcast out before March 20th, right? <laughs> oh, you're killing me. You're killing me. Okay. So we're wrapping up this part of Roxa, but we're going to kind of come, we're going to kind of circle back to it because uh, the other thing we wanted to talk a little bit about was Neff Madness. So Neff Madness is in full swing right now. And one of the regions is the anemia region. And we are blessed to have uh, Pascal here who shepherd 
the anemia region through. Is that right? I did. Um, I have to say with the help of Matt Sparks as well. Um, but yeah, anemia was a pretty exciting region um, in that madness this year. Um, who, who was our expert in, in, in anemia? So the expert was uh, Nupur Gupta, who's at Indiana, um, and she has some interest in anemia. So um, she was helping us um, basically um, when we had to make the decision as to... So for anyone on who's listening to this who does not know how enough madness works a region will have four teams two against each other and then um, two uh, facing each other and so Poor really helped with us um, deciding which two teams should go against each other basically the question we asked her was what do you think is like important in anemia and what do you think is going to be changing the field in the next few years and so that's how we came up with four teams which were one was two teams were oral items versus IV iron, and then the other two teams were ESA versus HIF-PHIs, which we've been talking about this whole um, That's what we've been talking about. Yeah. Help, help me out, Pascal. Like oral iron, I kind of feel like is the punching bag in CKD. Like it causes all kinds of patient side effects in my hands. Patients complain about it. They get constipated. They get belly pain. And it doesn't ever seem to move the needle. Am I missing something on oral iron? Is it better than I think it is? I think so, Joel. So it is true. Um, I love oral iron. Actually, if I had to vote for something, I would vote for oral iron in this um, competition. What, why is that? So I think part iron? of um, why it's been a punching bag is because a lot of the oral iron that's been looked at in studies, um, the ones that cause a lot of the complications are really kind of the older formulations like ferrous sulfate and fumarate. And really over the past few years, there have been so many uh, new iron formulations, which actually have been shown to do a pretty good job at increasing ferritins um, when um, doing pretty good at improving hemoglobins, even to the same level as um, what IV iron can do. What are these What are these drugs called? What kind of iron is So this? yeah, when we're talking about these new iron, so like orexia or ferricitrate, um, which was initially trialed as a FOS binder, but because it contained iron, when we looked at um, people's anemia or at anemia and hemoglobin responses, we saw a pretty um, good improvement. Um, other new ones, and not all of them, I have to say, are approved in the U.S., but include like ferric maltol, liposomal iron, sucrosomial iron, and they all release iron more readily, have less GI side effects. And um, nice. yeah, they, and I think overall, they're cheaper. That's a very big thing. They're a pill. People can find them in and any pharmacy. Patient convenience is huge, Yeah, right? exactly. What we've been talking about a lot during this session. And so I, I think they're they a pretty good contender for this region. Now, I, I've, I've, there's been some pretty interesting heart failure data looking at IVI. Are you, are you familiar with some of that stuff? It's a similar concept, right? Because it's a chronic inflammatory state, they have these uh, revved up hepcidin, oral iron, same thing, doesn't work. And they've shown that IV uh, iron administration actually can stabilize uh, heart failure and and potentially even improve you know heart failure you know marginally but it but it can get better so. Dr. Coyne was showing me survival benefit. I was I was stunned. I, I was just so I, I couldn't believe that that that, that it, it had that kind of effect. I'm just so used to seeing a hemoglobin delta, but no real effect. It was pretty impressive. So I don't know if you remember that. The- Sorry, there used to be uh, uh, something called the cardiorenal anemia syndrome, like, I don't know, two decades ago. But that was, they tried using EPO 
to improve outcomes uh, but it did not of course but it was a, it was the wrong molecule i guess it they needed the iron or maybe hif in a hif stabilizers but there were a lot so of trials we're talking about that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about right is it the is it the difference between exogenously giving people epo versus stimulating physiologic epo right that maybe maybe that's the answer i don't know i have to say one thing about these um heart failure iron iv iron studies what i like about them is of course beyond the survival benefit is that when um, there were some concerns, I think, in the past that IV iron can be associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And all these heart failure studies did not show that, which like is another reason for us to feel like we can give IV iron without being concerned about these um, side effects, which showed up in some of the renal studies. And I like that. So the, so the cardiovascular studies, here's the fragilest of the fragile Given IV iron, no cardiovascular sig- negative cardiovascular signal. There. Right, when nice. IV iron compared to placebo. So I think that's big and um, for all of the people who are afraid of giving IV iron. The, the big one, of course, in the renal one was done by um, Rajiv Agarwal from Indiana, uh, which showed that IV iron was worse compared to oral iron. I think we discussed that on Netflix. Yeah, we discussed that yeah, in FJC. That's, yeah. I think that's you're right. about that's the right. revoke trial. Revoke, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, but the, uh, yeah, so it's the, pretty much the only one who showed mm. it. But still, it was a big thing, and um, okay, I'm happy okay. that the newer trials um, are coming out, even in heart failure, showing that that's not the case. Yes, IV iron versus PO iron. In, in, in is that the bottom half or the yeah. top half of the bracket? And so, so it's IV iron versus PO iron. Sorry for the. And then the bottom half is HIF stabilizers, PHI versus ESAs. Vs ESAs. Now, what's the argument? Yeah, what's the argument for an ESA here? Well, the argument, I think the one good argument coming from someone like me who has only looked back at all these ESA trials is basically what Dr. Provenzano was talking about. Like these patients had hemoglobins of fives and then like for the past um, 33 years or so, um, really we haven't had these issues. I don't go home worried about my patient dying from a hemoglobin of five because I have ESAs. And so um, they've been tested. At least we know their side effects. We know side effects um, are usually more common with higher doses. So we can um, really try to mitigate those side effects. I think the one benefit is they've been tried for a long time versus HIF-PHIs, which, as we talked about, we don't know what we're going to see in 10 to 15 years of using them. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap, I'm going to wrap this up. Let's, uh, let's uh, go around the horn. We'll do um, uh, tubular secretions. This is an opportunity for you to promote anything that's uh, on your mind or you've been thinking about. Swapnil, you already have a good, always have a good one. You got something for us for a tubular secretion? Sure. So last week, uh, we had off an FJC chat. It was something called NEF trials. It was kind of funny because I've been, we have been talking about this for a while Um, and what we did is we discussed uh, something that I do like to discuss so we discussed trial methodology and a study design and and we to make it a little bit more interesting we talked about the phosphate uh, and the high low trials which are pragmatic uh, designs Uh, so we didn't have any results Uh, so we just talked about you know something very nerdy uh, which is uh, just study design and the chat turned out to be well with you know about 80 people joining in it was a it was an incredible turnout and good discussion yeah it was really yeah, good so we plan to do that maybe once in two months or so uh, so you know show up in uh, april for the next nef trials uh nayan do you have a tubular secretion you want to share 
Sure. So, you know, I'm going to give a shameless plug for Let's Lime With. Um, we had our first recording yesterday with um, uh, a distinguished guest, which was Dr. Kimberly Manning. Um, so we're planning on doing this every two months. This is a, a collaboration between the Cardio Nerds and then NFJC slash the NSMC internship. Um, and so we're, we're going to get that to you as soon as possible. But I, th- I think it's a great uh, new webinar slash uh, podcast that's going to be out. Uh, yeah, that it really, uh, uh, Kimberly knocked it out of the park. She was absolutely amazing on there. Really, uh, a great leader for, uh, of medicine, uh, field is well taken care of with Kimberly Manning at the helm. Uh, Pascal, you got something? I do. Really, the only thing on my mind um, this month has been Nuff Madness. So um, whoever's listening to this, fill out your bracket. And I have to say, and this is not because Joel is here, but as the newest executive member of um, Nuff Madness, I really had no idea how much work and attention to details these guys put into it. It's really a labor of love, and I hope everyone can see that. I will tell you, we worked so hard on Nuff Madness last year, and see it kind of it didn't really flop but it just didn't have the because it was it was introduced in the middle of the covid uh infodemic and pandemic it was just a real disappointment that we didn't get the full ride i'm hoping for a much better response this year so and actually mine is kind of covid related i've been there was data looking at comparing influenza deaths to covid deaths and just showing just the tremendous mortality that we've had with covid this year and just how devastating it's been and then, but somebody presented the data on influenza in the last year and RSV. So RSV bronchiolitis, you know, it's a, it's a big problem for uh, little kids. In, it's a, you know, pervasive problem in, in children's hospitals and it's fallen off the map. It's almost completely gone. And influenza numbers are almost completely gone. And all the steps that we've taken to prevent COVID were great for preventing diseases that are spread by respiratory droplets. This is probably the most compelling evidence that this is must be an aerosol disease because COVID has run rampant right through so many of the things that we've tried to do. I just think we missed it. We missed that this is aerosol and we needed a lot more than just a, a little uh, paper mask and a little or a cloth mask for a lot that a lot of people were wearing. And I just think how effective the interventions we told everybody to do for COVID have been for influenza and, and RSV and been, you know, you never, you can't see the counter. We don't know what COVID would have been without those changes, but it sure looks like it was relatively ineffective compared to how effective it was for these other diseases. It was really striking to me. Uh, and Jenny, you said you have a, you have a final, a final thought. Yeah. So this is actually not related to kidneys at all, but um, you know, this past week, one of my favorite musical groups actually ended up breaking up a uh, Daft Punk. So uh, they actually had a pretty epic epilogue when they announced their breaking up very dramatic in the desert. It was like seven or eight minutes long and it just really made you feel sad uh, and like a little shroud of mystery because it never actually said why they were uh, ending their journey. But, you know, they've basically been on my musical playlist from the time I actually carried iPods. Do you remember those things? And uh, yeah. So if anything, like I, yeah, it's just a very sad musical week. And, you know, I'm really glad they actually postponed this to 2021 because I don't think I would have been able to handle it in 2020. (laughs) 
a, a melancholy happy trails to Daft Punk. <laughs> to Daft Punk. Yeah, so end of an era for uh, some pretty cool electronic music. Mm-hmm.